Hi, welcome to The Heavy with Andrew and Don, where we cover a large range of rock and metal topics for the casual listener. Uh, I am your host, Don Sutherland. With me, as always, my brother, Andrew Sutherland. What's up, dirtbags? Uh, remember, you can email us at theheavypod at gmail.com or DM us on Facebook. Andrew, what are we talking about today? All right, today we're going to be talking about Alice Cooper. By that, I mean the band, not the individual, and a brief, oh, okay. history, of, and a brief history of shock rock. I, I was actually going to ask, I'm like, Andrew, there's two. Uh, all right, <laughs> let's get into it. Okay, well, I opened a bottle. And it was kind of a bungled attempt, and you can't really hear it, just so people know that I, I actually did open a beer. I didn't know what you did. There was just a long pause. I was hoping there'd be like a more of a, a profound like uh, noise from the like, crack in the, the lid in the bottle, but there was oh. really nothing. It's just a little, <laughs> yeah. a little hiss. But the beer is going to be delicious. Okay. All right. Yeah. So Alice Cooper, the band, not not the person. Yeah. Let's let's uh, let's get into that. So uh, when we're talking about shock rock, the most recognizable names that come to most people, at least of my generation, when categorizing mu- musical artists as shock rock, would probably be Alice Cooper and then Marilyn Manson. So I, yeah. I, th- I thought we'd touch on like a quick history of shock rock and uh, maybe more the aesthetics of the scene than the actual music spending most of the time talking about Alice Cooper, uh, the band, to be like the Alice Cooper group, I guess. Uh, the original incarnation before Alice Cooper took the name for himself. Right. And they uh, and basically how they used to incorporate uh, theatrical elements into their live shows uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, so he was doing all the, the crazy stuff as the band before he was... Oh, yeah, it all started with, it started with the band uh, way before he... Oh, okay. um, they, they, that was the kind of their shtick way before he went off on his own kind of. Okay. Um, I was kind of under the impression uh, that that was just sort of like a regular rock group, but I guess I guess I was wrong. No, no, they were definitely known for their theatrical stage shows. Okay, interesting. Uh, so I'll just I, I got a few definitions of shock rock that I found online that I'll that'll go through. Whether or not I agree with them is uh, neither here nor there. This is kind of <laughs> okay. Just just what <laughs> other just people think that, how other people define shock rock. Yeah. So, uh, of course, on Wikipedia, which is one of my favorite sources, uh, as it is with everybody, I guess, these days. It's pretty reliable, uh, I think. The combination of rock or heavy metal music with highly theatrical performances emphasizing shock value. Performances may include violent or provocative behavior from the artists, the use of attention-grabbing imagery, such as costumes, masks, or face paint, or special effects such as pyrotechnics or fake blood. Shock rock also often includes elements of horror. Uh, another... Definition I found from tvtropes.org. Rock music designed to shock and offend. Musicians often don theatrical costumes and live shows are frequently elaborate affairs, often with the image or performance being as important, if not more so, than the music itself. So, pretty similar definitions there. But I mean, yeah. really, the, the music is kind of secondary to it. Where, like, the, the definition of shock rock is more related to the, the, the performance, the performance art, the theatrics, than the music itself. But, it's, I mean, it's generally, it is shock rock so it should be still usually focused around like some sort of rock music whether it's rock hard rock metal yeah aside from like some bands i would maybe put like ramstein in there where they they seem like they focus a little more on the imagery (laughs) than the music but but then yeah that's not always the case i mean like those definitions are basically describing kiss (laughs) yeah kiss still has some pretty awesome music so well so i mean ramstein and kiss both have lots of like kiss's first album is amazing yeah, um, but yeah, definitely uh, well known for their stage antics and whatnot, like the yeah, spitting exactly. blood and the fire and stuff. So Alice Cooper, 
to me, anyway, my personal opinion, they're a great band to feature for a shock rock history since they were really the first to memorably combine the on-stage theatrics with fairly high-quality musical output and, uh, and staying power. Um, but I'll, we'll do a quick thing about a few artists that use on-stage theatrics before Alice Cooper. So the first one, anyway, is not really a rock musician, uh, but the earliest musical artist generally recognized as a pioneer of shock rock was an American blues singer named Screaming Jay Hawkins, who he started performing his biggest hit oh, okay. called I Put a Spell on You. Uh, the song was actually released in 1956, but he started performing it with a bunch of onstage gimmicks and props, including uh, he emerged from a coffin, he'd wear a golden leopard skin costumes, a cape sometimes, uh, he had a cigarette smoking skull on a stick that he named Henry, uh, he used rubber snakes, uh, a disembodied hand, and at some point he would put a uh, like a fake bone through his nose so a lot oh of God. yeah it, a lot of props so, and stuff it's it's really funny hearing that because like you know it was 1956 you know that people were freaking out over this well the, the song <laughs> was released thought it was terrifying the song was released in 1956 but i think most of his antics were more from uh in the 60s like he kept performing the song like, oh, okay like, like maybe in the, in the 60s, 60s a little less but but like you can just picture all the people clutching their pearls over like one hand floating in the air. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure at that time it was actually shocking. Whereas now, like people are fairly yeah. desensitized to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, like to to quote, I don't remember his name because it's German. But the singer of Ramstein, he has a he has a good quote saying that uh, the only way you could shock audiences today is if you actually killed somebody live on stage. Yeah, it's almost gotten to that extent at that point. Yeah, and he said that like eight years ago or something so <laughs> so uh yeah back to screaming jay hawkins there's an animated performance he did by animated i don't mean like animation i mean like cartoon like, yeah like kind of <laughs> lively okay. right uh right. <laughs> a performance he did on the merv griffin show in 1966 so uh that, that's actually available on uh youtube i'll, I'll post a, a video of that on our instagram or facebook whatever after and, and i'll try to actually remember to post it because i've been really negligent about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. posting things i know so i'll try to get better at that um, but although not technically rock music, uh, Hawkins' powerful voice was definitely heavy, and his theatrics were uh, were very shocking for the time. Oh yeah, he's like dressed like a wizard. Yeah, he was like cool. de- definitely for that time. It was it was something that nobody really seen before, right? Oh, I don't know the the skull's kind of creepy. The skull on a stick. So yeah, you know what? I'd be kind of freaked out. Yeah, and if you watch him perform, the guy's got some like charisma. He's got quite a mm-hmm. he's quite a performer. So uh, on to the next guy. I'll just talk about a couple more, I guess, artists in, in this space kind of right before Alice Cooper started right. becoming known for that. Uh, but so stealing Screaming Jay Hawkins' name uh, for, was a guy named Screaming Lord Such, an English guy. Okay. <laughs> he like just blatantly <laughs> stole the name. Uh, Completely so, took it. His stage name was actually in full, Screaming Lord Such, 3rd Earl of Harrow, even though he wasn't like an actual earl. But uh, his real name was David Edward Such. Uh, he was an English singer. He used onstage theatrics to perform his horror theme songs in the 1960s uh, with his band called The Savages. So he would one of his things was he would dress like Jack the Ripper with the makeup and costume. And uh, also, it was also the name of his most popular song, Jack the Ripper. Uh, much like okay. and much like Hawkins, he would come out of a coffin and uh, he used other props like knives, skulls, fake bodies. Like so that. the entire the entire bit he took he took everything yeah well i mean it's uh, maybe deviated a little bit it was but it, but he definitely yeah. took some cues from it but yeah they they also did other things aside from the jack the ripper gimmick uh, such in his band also had some other theme tours like one where they dressed up as roman soldiers 
So the uh, you know that that would be fun. Yeah, I mean, the, musically, like so, musically, such a stuff is pretty mediocre. His singing voice isn't even close to on par with Hawkins. Uh, yeah, but he definitely got in early with the over the top stage theatrics. So that's uh, where he's notable, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the one last early shock rock artist that I'll mention before we get into Alice Cooper is another British guy named Arthur Brown. So in the 1960s with his group called the, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, the singer would perform with heavy makeup, sometimes kind of a corpse paint style, with like the black eyes and the white face. And uh, okay. sometimes he'd have a mask on and he had this like flaming headpiece. So it was just this thing that sat on top of his head that was just on fire. And then he'd wear like a cape or a robe sometimes and he'd paint like symbols on his stomach and or chest and this bunch of theatrical crap like, like similar to what alice cooper would kind of do later on but uh, maybe at a smaller yeah. scale um, and as an intro it was, he had this one hit song called fire anybody who grew up back then i guess would probably have heard it but uh as an intro to this hit called fire he would proclaim i am the god of hellfire at the start of the song and then uh musically it would uh it was pretty organ heavy like 60s psychedelic rock but uh yeah the 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 theatrics, like the image of him performing, is pretty striking. Very, very surreal. But yeah, but once you once he breaks, it's funny because he looks so sinister, and then he yells at I'm the God of Hellfire, and then it breaks into this like really like synthy, like <laughs> discoy, like weird sixties. I don't know. It's like I mean, it's not what you think be at all. Right? Into that that sounds that sounds fun. It's like it, it's it's kind of a catchy song, but it's kind of goofy. Like he looks kind of yeah. like King Diamond. But then the music is oh, nothing close. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah, I got you. <laughs> uh, but but Arthur Brown actually did have a, a good singing voice. He had this like high range operatic voice, so he was known for right. that as well. Okay, so uh, that's the kind of the little history there. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to Alice Cooper now. All right, sounds good. And like when I'm talking about Alice Cooper, at least at the start of this, we'll be talking about Alice Cooper as the band because kind of partway through, while they were they were a group like the Alice Cooper group. So from say I guess. Their first album came out in 1969 to the last album they made together in 1973. Kind of partway through that process, he started becoming Alice Cooper. So okay. I read a book. Uh, Dennis Dunaway wrote a, a book, and I'll, I'll, I'll get the name of it after at the end of the show here. I'll throw it in there. But uh, I was reading quite a bit of that book to get some of my information. And he was the one who, like, originally he would call, he called him Vince. His name was Vince Fernier, uh, Alice Cooper. So yeah. he, early in the story, he would call him Vince, and then like kind of as the story progressed, he would start calling him Alice. Okay. So, so like back to the early history before they released an album at all, <clears throat> it was actually a group of Phoenix, Arizona high school students, and they the, the first thing they did it was a a Beatles parody band that they called the Earwigs, and they had costumes and wigs and stuff, and they uh, they claimed to be from <laughs> okay. Cesspool, England, instead of Liverpool, I guess. It's so so edgy. And they performed at a school talent show in 1964. Okay, so uh, Vince Fernier, who I like mentioned before, who would later be known as Alice Cooper, uh, and yeah. bassist Dennis Dunaway, although at the time he didn't play bass yet, but uh, and uh, guitarist Glenn Buxton, they were all, all three of them were from the the core lineup of the original Alice Cooper group, but they were all in right. this lineup uh, along with a couple guys uh, named John Tatum who played guitar, a guy named Phil Wheeler on drums, and a guy named John Spear, who would later be the band's drummer. I don't know what he did for this show because his name's in there, but it doesn't say what he actually did. <laughs> he wasn't wasn't quite on the drums yet. Yeah, no, no, they, they had this Phil Wheeler guy on the drums, so I, yeah, I'm not sure what yeah. what John Spear was playing at the time. But Vin, Vince and Dennis couldn't even play instruments at the time, so they just faked their way through the performance. Jeez. I think John Tatum and uh, Glenn Buxton could play guitar, and Phil Wheeler could drum, but the other guys were just kind of standing there with like instruments in their hands, I guess. Seems to be the trend with because this is like punk adjacent, 
But when we're talking about, about all these punk bands, it always seems like they kind of start and no one really knows what they're doing and they just kind of decide based on how they're feeling at the time and then they yeah. learn how to play. I kind of love that it's though because everything kind of happens organically after that, right? Like it just yeah. kind of falls into place. Yeah, I mean, it's it works, it works for them, I guess. <laughs> well, it definitely worked for these guys eventually, right? Mm-hmm. So, so like I was saying, those guys couldn't even play their instruments. They faked their way through the performance, but they actually ended up winning the talent show. So, hey, I mean, if it works, yeah, <laughs> sure, why not? So, uh, as the earwigs, they appeared on the local Phoenix children's show called the was it called the Wallace and Ladmo show? Kind of a strange but name. They, had, they filmed. <laughs> they appeared on a children's show. Yeah, well, this is still when they were in high school, so they were like 16, 17 oh, years okay. old. Oh, right? I guess so. And uh, Wayne Newton, the Las Vegas legend himself, was actually on the show at the same time as them and gave him some pointers. What? You know, <laughs> what you know kind Wayne, of children's show is this? Oh, and I, is, right? I know him because yeah. he's in Fallout New Vegas. That's all. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he's he's Mr. House. What? Why was he? <laughs> well, well, he was pretty young at the time too. So that was this before he became like the Las Vegas right. uh, legend okay. or whatever. Uh, so after this, they got hired at a club in Phoenix called the VIP Lounge, and they ended up changing their name from the Earwigs to the Spiders. So in uh, in 1966, guitarist John Tatum quit the band, and he was replaced by Michael Bruce, who would be uh, one of the main guitarists. Like uh, Michael Bruce and Glenn Buxton would be the two guitarists for like kind of the heyday of the Alice Cooper group. Right. Okay. Uh, and at this point, the Spiders were still the house band at the VIP Lounge, and they figured they'd have a better chance at keeping the gig by changing both their songs and their image as often as they could. Sometimes they get props for their stage show from the kitchen oh. at the lounge, like utensils, napkins, straws, and spatulas, like weird <laughs> stuff like that. So they they're just doing whatever they could to stay fresh, kind of. It's uh, it's very um, what's the what's the guy David Bowie of them? Just change it up, just go go completely in a different direction. David Bowie did like a, a full one eighty at one point, didn't he? Like with his image. Yeah, well, like you look at pictures of him and stuff in. in for like promotions in the 60s like when like he late 60s he's this clean cut guy is that when he did the song <laughs> the laughing gnome you ever heard that song oh, no it, was, it sounds really weird oh though. my god yeah it was before it was like before he changed the image and got real big but yeah i'm pretty sure yeah, it was called the laughing gnome it's like a really weird like psychedelic 60s song <laughs> yeah like i know he put out a few albums before he really hit it big but then yeah and then it's just straight into like ziggy stardust and yeah like, ziggy stardust was where he really started Hitting a big, yeah. we found his groove, kind of right. The silver paint. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the band also started using some innovative lighting devices at this time, created by their lighting tech, a guy named Charlie Carnell. So they had things like I can't really describe them in detail because it would take forever, probably. But they had things that they were named uh, the lobster strobe, uh, flasher lights, the light organ, uh, light wheel, and the light wheel. Their club manager at VIP called the electrolucent mind machine. So remember, this is the 60s, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, they're really starting to up the ante on their stage show, just trying to, you know, get things a little bit more interesting, a little yeah, more uh, seriously. theatrical, I guess. So in, uh, in 1966, a Japanese band called The Spiders released an album, and it forced the band to change their name again. So they went with the name, their name was uh, The Naz, and that was expired, inspired by a Yardbird song called The Naz Are Blue. And I actually listened to that song, it's a pretty sweet song. It's a Yardbird song called yeah, The Nazar Blue. I haven't listened to much of the Yardbirds. So. They got some good stuff. Because when I was reading this and how big of an influence the Yardbirds were on on the group at the time, I started listening to some of that music. And uh, I mean, it's definitely 60s music. Like it's, it's very, you know, kind of psychedelic, poppy, 60s rock. Yeah. But it's yeah. pretty awesome still. Like this. And like the Nazar Blue has got a, some pretty wicked guitar in it. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the Yardbirds had some phenomenal guitarists <laughs> go through that band. So, yeah, that's why I'm like I'm kind of disappointed in myself. Like they were the springboard for so much. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of a lot of amazing artists and bands like came from that from the Yardbirds, mm-hmm. right? Like over time. Yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah, it's Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck, all three of them. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so the band also started favoring an androgynous dress style. So for those who don't know what androgynous is, like partly male, partly female in appearance. And uh, this predates scenes like glam rock, like in the, I guess, later 70s and the 80s and stuff. Uh-huh. So, and David Bowie, right in there. Yeah, so they would wear like some, you know, kind of women's clothing mixed in with their other stuff. And like, I know at the time, Alice Cooper would, well, I guess Vince would uh, use like a feather boa on stage and stuff. Right. Part of his costume. Okay. Uh, so the band now called The Naz, uh, they ended up he- heading to the Sunset Strip in L.A. in 1967 to try and get big. But uh, they would go back and forth to, to Phoenix to jam until eventually renting a house in Venice Beach in L.A. Okay. So they, they came to the conclusion that the audience wants to see a show. And according to Dunaway in his book, theatrics were mandatory if you wanted to hold the attention of the television generation. So it was like people had short attention span, I guess, and you had to do something yeah. big to, to keep them locked in, right? I mean, you can't really fault any of their logic because clearly it's it's worked for them. So That's why we're talking about them. They're the first band to really to use this as their big selling point. It's like, you know, some bands you go to the show to watch their, you know, say Jimmy Page rip it up on guitar or watch like insert, you know, singer or drummer here or whatever. But like you go to an Alice Cooper show back in the early 70s, you're like, you want to go see like huge, like spectacle, right? Like something yeah, grotesque and gigantic crazy. Display, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, obviously, it worked for them, right? I wonder if there's any influence on the way that uh, Pink Floyd did their shows, because it's very, very much the same thing. Why do you say that? Because at this time, when they were down in L.A., Pink Floyd actually, like, they hung out with Pink Floyd, and they like, oh, Pink Floyd stayed at their hey. house for a bit, I think, for like back when Sid Barrett was just kind of on the outs, and they were bringing David Gilmore in. <laughs> yeah, uh, that would. Hey, maybe I'm onto something, because I mean, it's very, it, it sounds a lot like you know what they did with pigs and all that. So they, they really adhere to those those giant spectacles as well like in a very similar way yeah for sure well they, they came out of the same time period in the same yeah mindset kind of right the, the band still they were called the naz at the time still uh, their first real gig in la was at a place called the hullabaloo and they were actually following aretha franklin at, and they started playing at 3 a.m so yeah the uh the crowd started to clear out right after franklin performed because they're obviously there to see her because she's amazing <laughs> kind of an odd mix too yeah <laughs> like you're, like you're coming right after Aretha Franklin. but everyone's there to see her right and then the, the naz comes on and they're just like a psychedelic band playing a bunch of cover songs right um but yeah. so after she performed and dunaway said to the rest of the band look at the bright side now we can say that aretha franklin opened for us <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, good way to I look mean, at it. Technically, yeah, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually, John Spear got tired of the direction the band was taking, and uh, Neil Smith, the guy named Neil Smith, took over on the drums. And he was already hanging out around the band at the time, and this would round out what would be the classic Alice Cooper group lineup Okay. for their first bunch of albums. So uh, mm-hmm. after being in L.A. for a bit, they found out about a, a Philly band called Todd Rundgren and the Naz, who had released an album... <laughs> And and they had to change their band name again. <laughs> so, Damn you, Todd Rundgren. Because apparently it's this, this, I guess it was kind of, I don't know if it was an unspoken rule or a legal thing or whatever, but as soon as a band had released an album, that they kind of had that name. That was a, that was official. Yeah, so they had to change their name again. So 
also from this book that I read. I, I haven't read Alice Cooper's book, and I think there's another one by one of the band members. So they might have different uh, recollections of things. So what he what he says is uh, the name Alice Cooper was Vince's idea. Vince being Alice Cooper later on, uh, and he would go on eventually go solo in the mid seventies, like I was saying before, and uh, and legally change his name to Alice Cooper. Oh, he legally changed it too. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Vince's thoughts were it would be like Lizzie Borden, the innocent girl who conceals a hatchet behind her back. So it kind of had a sinister, <laughs> a sinister uh, intonation or yeah. Or hey, hey, her. she was she was acquitted. Lizzie Borden. Yeah, oh, I, think so. well, I think that's the right one. I, I don't think she actually like ended up being. Oh, yeah, yeah she was acquitted. I double checked. Yeah, but anyways, I won't ruin. Yeah. I won't ruin their reputations. Yeah, no, it's just too late. Done. The damage is done. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so apparently, there's a story that the name came out of a Ouija board session, but Dunaway maintains that it was Vince's idea first. And then okay. the uh, the band agreed as a group that it would be the band name at the time and not an individual's name. So that's why like they started out as Alice Cooper, the band, and then kind of morphed into Alice Cooper, the individual. Right. <laughs> so what they said wouldn't happen. They, uh, Eventually, it just kind of went that way anyway. Happened but, naturally. Okay. Um, so Vince started acting out on uh, early songs like Nobody Likes Me, where he's he plays a little kid in, in his room. And the band actually constructed a screen, or sorry, a screen door, and knocked the window out of it. And Vince would look out, singing about how nobody liked them. Like they start using props and stuff on stage. Yeah. And uh, kind of play out their songs. Okay. Uh, so the song called "Field of Regret," Vince would play an evil, menacing character, and he narrate a dark sermon. Okay. One of the this is before they even released. Well, I guess they were just releasing their first album, or just about to. Yeah. Uh, so they hadn't really gotten fully into the big theatrical stage show yet, but they were starting to figure things out and see what would work. Yeah, yeah, like wor- workshopping the performance, I guess, because that's something you'd that's something you'd really have to fine-tune. Yeah, but it was really the idea of, of Vince or, or Alice, I guess, playing a character yeah, on stage. Yeah, that too, yeah. So uh, one of the band's most popular onstage stunts was the guillotine, where Alice would slice watermelons, and then later he would <laughs> fake behead himself with the guillotine. Right. So that so was kind of a lot of, lot of fake heads of his own head, just yeah. <laughs> ready to go for this. And it seems like that's one that kind of carried carried on later on as well, like when, when he was solo. Because I've, I've seen videos of him way later in the like 70s, 80s, and even still like, you know, up till now, the, the we're still doing thing. the... Yeah. 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 I'm sure the like the effects are probably better now. You know, like yeah. the, the props or whatever. Stuff. Oh, that's really... It's really funny, like, the way it's progressed now. Because when he was here last in uh, here in Calgary, he played at the Jubilee... The Jubilee yeah. is like the place you go for plays. <laughs> like it's not, it's not a heavy concert venue. I saw Morrissey there, which made which made more sense. But like, I can't picture Alice Cooper in a venue where you can only sit. But really, since his since his show is mostly really theatrical, it actually makes sense. Like for his stage guess, show, right? I guess so. And like, maybe it's just the main demographic that's coming aren't going to need the mosh pit to this. Yeah, exactly. Even when Alice got a bit heavier, it was more like hair metal style, not thrash or whatever. Like they, they were, yeah. it's not really mosh pit kind of scene, right? It's it's more of a sit and just enjoy the spectacle sort of thing. Yeah, true. Uh, all right. So the event that really cemented the band as as shock rock, it was it was a show in Toronto in 1969. So the band had a couple of chickens around. They had gotten at a gig in Detroit, and they guess they they named them and they were kind of pets, sort of. But uh, in the confusion of the show, Vince or uh, Alice, as by now he'd probably be known as, he uh, actually maybe not quite yet, but you know within the Getting next there, year or two, almost yeah. there. He's playing the character. He uh, he pulled one out of a pillowcase. I guess somebody threw it at him in a pillowcase, and he pulled it out of the pillowcase, and he didn't realize the chickens couldn't fly, 
So he like threw it up thinking that it would fly, fly away. And the chicken ended up in the crowd and the crowd like tore it apart. Oh no, that's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. So that incident kind of created a bunch of like stories and gossip and stuff about how Alice Cooper bit off a chicken's head and drank its blood. There's like a bunch of like ridiculous stuff that came out of it, but that's, that's actually what happens. Yeah, that's so yeah, that's so legend. much sadder than them doing it on purpose though because you said they were pets they were probably so upset about it yeah they had like the one that got torn apart in, in Dunaway's book he said that his name was Pecker oh, <laughs> the man. chicken that got torn apart yeah, yeah. rest pretty in sad. peace Pecker that sucks but it, <laughs> it created like some serious notoriety for the band right? yeah it, it made I, I guess super, it works like you know probably hated by some but just revered by so many more <laughs> you know yeah yeah, I imagine it's it's up there with the the Ozzy Osbourne bat. Thing. bat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's just that creates such a mythos around you. Yeah, except and Ozzy actually like did that. bite a bat. He just didn't realize it was real until after. Yeah, that's slightly worse, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> accidentally killing a chicken. And uh, they would also relocate from California to Detroit around 1970 for their careers. Yeah, like uh, I mean, I'll talk about that a little bit more down here but really it's just because the they weren't getting anywhere in california yeah and they went to and and actually vince or or alice was originally from detroit he moved to phoenix when he was a teenager Hmm. so he was kind of going back home but uh the the music scene in detroit was uh it was like mc5 and the stooges and stuff so it was kind of a oh a a heavier scene kind of like a a grittier scene yeah i gotcha so um we've kind of gone through like their early history i'm just going to go through like some of the the gimmicks they use and some of the props they use in some of their stage shows. Yeah. So in their 1971 tour, Alice would get tortured on stage and end up executed by an electric chair. Uh, the band uh, adopted a bow constrictor that they named Kachina that someone had thrown on stage. So, he's, I mean, Alice Cooper is pretty famous for uh, well-known to have like a, a snake around his neck. I didn't realize stuff. the snake was thrown at them though. <laughs> yeah, that's what Dennis Dunaway says. Like when you read online, there's different stories about how some fan like some girl yeah. had the snake and gave it to them but I, I mean who knows exactly what the real story is but in the book that i read it was apparently thrown on stage and they adopted uh-huh. it kinda. interesting so uh in, the, in their song the ballad of dwight fry alice's character was in a straight jacket in an insane asylum and then he ends up strangling the evil nurse that abuses him so these, <laughs> okay. these are just things sure. that would kind of escalate in the in, in the uh the shows they would it's like entire do. musicals that he's doing here yeah, they would set up these pretty like intricate scenes, right? Like, yeah. Uh, in, in one sequence in the 1971 tour, they had a scene where they would lead Alice up to a gallows and hang him, and then it would get dark kind of, and then they'd substitute his hanging body for a skeleton. <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty dark stuff, eh? <laughs> it just decomposes immediately. Yeah. Or <laughs> but you, you can imagine that like nobody else was doing stuff like this at the time. I don't think there's anyone doing that now, honestly. Yeah, well, I mean, it it's, well it's kind of... That's the thing is it's already been it's already been done, right? I mean, yeah. like I was saying before, Marilyn Manson m- might have taken it like a step further at one point, but really, like, what do you do now, right? Like, what like Ramstein? Yeah. Ramstein's probably the only one group I can think of offhand that's really taken the stage shows like another level, you know, yeah. pushed it a little further. Like, it's all it's all about the the experience of going to the show. Like, um, you can do it, but like, you're not really. It's, it's hard to shock people nowadays, right? Yeah. Um, a couple more things here. So on stage for the Billion Dollar Babies tour, Alice would impale baby dolls with a sword. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that one's that one's pretty out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, around Christmas in their 1973 tour, Alice would invite Santa Claus up on stage and beat the shit out of him. Okay, I'm back I'm back in it. The, the babies kind of lost me, so that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, that's, that's all I got right now for just 
things that they did, whatever certain gimmicks they did on stage yeah. for some of their shows and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure there's more, depending on what band members remember All what. All the different stuff that they they did. I'm sure there's a lot in there. Yeah, I mean, they put a lot of time into into planning this stuff, and it was pretty complex. So, so yeah, just I'll, I'll do a quick rundown of their albums, and then we'll get to the uh, then we'll get to the workout playlist. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So the band's first album uh, in 1969 it was called Pretties for You. It's pretty much uh, psychedelic junk, although the song Fields <laughs> okay. of Regret that I mentioned earlier is sort of decent. Uh, their second album is called Easy Action. It's a bit of a step up, I guess, but still a lot of 60s psychedelic meandering with okay. uh, pretty loose, really loose song structure. Yeah. So neither of these albums are, are up there on my list, I guess. Um, their third album, and probably my overall favorite, I would say, or pretty damn close to it, it's called Love It to Death. Uh, it showed the band's uh, musical influence from the scene in Detroit, where like where they relocated to to get away from California. So like you know those first two albums, they were in California, and you can kind of see the influence of of the scene there to the music they were putting out. Yeah. And then when they moved to Detroit, they started putting out a little bit more uh, like gritty, more hard rock influence type music. Right. Yeah. So so it was also their first commercial success, featuring the hit "I'm 18." I'm sure you've heard that song. Oh yeah, yeah, I know that one. Uh, the album after that is called Killer. It was released later in 1971, so the same year. And uh, I, I guess I could say like Love Love to Death has any competition is my favorite. It would be this one. So I would say like Love to Death and Killer are my two favorite Alice Cooper albums. Okay. So, so lo- lots of great, uh, I mean, hard rock, I'd say for the time, uh, tracks that helped shape their stage show, including the song Dead Babies, which I assume was the soundtrack <laughs> for chopping bloody baby dolls I, with an axe on stage. I would, I would <laughs> hope did. so. I- <laughs> I would hope I would hope that they've at least matched it up that way. Yeah, you really had a thing there for for dead babies, <laughs> yeah. apparently. <laughs> Alice, we were kind of worried, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, he was drinking a lot back then. So. Fair enough. Who hasn't? Before, who hasn't stabbed a dollar too? And like, this is this is beers and this is like way before he went sober. So, uh, so the band was finally writing pretty great rock tunes that showcase their very twisted imaginations, and. Uh, I will describe Alice's voice as like a raspy snarl of a voice, pretty gritty, and the rest of the members were pretty top-notch musicians as well. So they uh, they started putting it together. Uh, I mean, a lot of it came down to just being able to write good songs. Yeah, because they well, had some yeah, talent yeah, before, right? And they've yeah they've got some some ones that really stick around. I was gonna ask like I know Schools Out is the band, right? I'm right I, I was that. actually gonna that was my next one. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I ruined it. So th- thanks for ruining um, everything, Don. <laughs> well, now I'm not sure if I want to ask my second question, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, Poison is just him, right? Uh, yeah, Poison is from his solo stuff. That's that's from like 1989. That's way later. Okay, okay. That's what All I thought. Right. I just want to make sure I got my timeline right because, yeah, I'll, I'll let you talk about Schools Out. Pretend I never said that. <laughs> uh, so the, the next album, like uh, I was saying before you uh, so rudely – Ruined it. <laughs> so when I, so uh, when I but, uh, it. Their next album was 1972's "Schools Out," and although the single for that song was huge, honestly, other than that song and there's a song called "My Stars," yeah, uh, the song the song quality was pretty substandard in my opinion. Like I didn't really like the album very much. Okay. Uh, most of the songs really don't have any hooks, and they don't really seem to go anywhere. They don't really meander as much as like the uh, psychedelic stuff, but they're yeah. honestly the uh, like it's just when you go from Love it to death, to killer, and then schools. I was just like not up to the same standard. Just kind of, just kind of no. drops. Yeah. Just like the killers, they always they have like one good song, and the rest of the album just blows. 
Yeah, that's not, there's a few bands like that. Like uh, like Muse. Man, I remember like Muse yeah. put out a couple of singles that were so good. I'm like, oh, this album's going to be so good. And then I listened to the album, like there's nothing else good on it. <laughs> yeah, like the first the first couple albums were awesome, but then they really fell yeah. into that. <laughs> yeah. It seems like they were just churning out stuff to like fulfill a contract or something. Yeah, like any anything after like I think Absolution was their third or something, yeah. and that was the last one. I yeah, listened through them, and it just especially the last couple of years. Speaking of meandering, um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, all right, and then uh, we get to Billion Dollar Babies in 1973, which uh, it had a few more quality tunes on it, like the title track, uh, a song called Elected, and No More Mr. Nice Guy, which you've probably heard. Oh yeah. That we play that one too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good. Song. That was one of their big big songs. Uh, I have a copy of it on vinyl, and I actually have. So when they released that album on vinyl, it came with like this uh, album sized billion dollar bill that you like unfold. Oh, that's awesome! And I actually have a copy of it on vinyl with that bill still in it, which is that's really, really cool. cool. That's yeah. got to be worth something. Ah, yeah, maybe a few bucks. I mean, I don't know if it's like a first press or anything, but it, like just having yeah. the bill in it makes it definitely a little bit more valuable. Right? That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. More sentimental value for me, I guess, than anything. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Uh, the final album that the Alice Cooper group put out before Alice went solo and took the name with them was an album called Muscle of Love, which they released later in 1973. <laughs> yeah, very uh, subtle. Very, very subtle. <laughs> yeah. Um, this it's album. Very kiss of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. No, oh, this is before, like, before Love Gun, anyway. They, so, yeah. they, they inspired the lack of subtlety. Yeah. Uh, so this album failed to match the success of the previous ones. There's, uh, there's really no standout tracks in it. For the most part, except for maybe the title track's okay, I guess. Um, and there's a song called "The Man with the Golden Gun," which the band <clears throat> the band was actually hoping it would make it into the James Bond movie of the same name. <laughs> but uh, from what the band claims, they submitted the song too late, and the studio ended up going with a song by a singer named Lulu, which uh, I oh, is that for like the opening song? It's like the like the title track, yeah, like the main song. Oh, I I actually watched that. Uh, within the last couple months and i noted that the opening track sucked it's it's terrible <laughs> it was like it was like the only opening really track bad. i read about it somewhere uh, briefly there and it's it looks like that was the only track that was like the title song of a james bond movie that didn't chart at all it's so it was, bad it's it's bad um so before uh we're almost at the workout playlist here uh just to kind of get back to alice cooper as a solo artist uh he, he went solo after that album uh, with a yeah. with his backing band, and he continued to record, and he's recorded and toured since. Basically, the original band broke up in 1974. Uh, guitarist Glenn Buxton has passed away in, uh, in 1997, but the surviving members have reunited a few times since 1999, and including some credits on Cooper's latest album, uh, 2021's Detroit Stories. So that was kind of cool. Okay. Uh, there's obviously a lot more to tell about shock rock artists and bands, like other bands, between the early 70s and now including Marilyn Manson, who I mentioned before, and the other bands like yeah. Wasp, Gwar, Ramstein, uh, Ghost, more recently. Okay. All right. On to the workout playlist. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. I ain't got time to bleed. This is the trouble! Let's put a smile on that face. I took the wrong week to quit drinking. All right, I'm regrettably going to do a couple songs off their first albums, <laughs> just just to like kind of show the scope <laughs> of, of how their music uh, kind of progressed a little bit. Okay. So the first song I'll do is called Fields of Regret. We talked about it before uh, from Pretties for You from 1969. It's the darkest, heaviest song in their de- debut album, uh, relatively speaking, of course, since most of that album's like aimless garbage. 
But uh, <laughs> it started to, it was a starting point basically to show how the band's sound would change as they moved away from the 60s stoner stuff to the gritty Detroit style rock. It uh, doesn't get a lot of airplay on Spotify, I can tell you that. It does not. No, right. Nothing on their first <laughs> album does. <laughs> fields, fields of Regret, Alice Cooper. I don't I don't hate it. Uh it's very acid rocky, but then I also yeah. like I listen to the first minute and like, all right, you know what, it's not bad. And I just I just happen to jump into the middle of the song and then at the end and it's doing the exact same chord progression yeah. the entire way. It, it just, just kind of drones changes. on. And like yeah. the thing is too, that's probably the at least to me, probably the best song on that first album. The, the first album's almost unlistenable. Mm. Like yeah, I it's it's not good. But uh like <clears> it's all it's all a means to an end, right? So. Yeah, I don't get some there. So, so song number two, we're going to do a song called Return of the Spiders. It's from okay. their second album, Easy Action, from 1970. Uh, still a lot of 60s psychedelia bleeding through all over their second album. But uh, this song has some great driving bass throughout it and some fairly solid guitar work, even though it like, kind of ne- never seems to end, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and Alice's, or Vince as he was known at the time, his voice is starting to show just kind of the right amount of gravelly nasal rasp, <laughs> I guess. I, okay. that's, that's how I describe it anyway, but it's it's, it's perfect. <laughs> like his voice is starting to sound like it should, yeah. like it will later it's on. Evolving a little bit. Yeah. He was reverse James Hetfielding it. He's getting better with age. Yeah, oh man. Yeah, I definitely agree that James Hetfield did not get better with age. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa. Yeah, it sounds like really grand. <laughs> sounds like Eddie Vedder almost. Uh, <laughs> Return of the Spiders, <laughs> Alice Cooper. Yeah, it's definitely getting better. Like, it, I really like his voice in that, and uh, like, it's it's really bluesy. It definitely yeah. <laughs> goes on a little long. Uh, it kind of just does the same thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, his voice yeah, is like probably it. the best part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, he's really starting to come into his own there. Yeah, the bluesy stuff is cool, but it doesn't entirely match his voice yet. So, yeah. I imagine that probably evolves a little bit. Yeah, they're still putting it together. Like I said, after that yeah. album, they moved out of California to Detroit, where they kind of got their shit together. Right. So, song number three, we're we're starting to get into the the good stuff. It's a song called Caught in a Dream from Love It to Death from 1971. It's the first Uh song off Love It to Death. And like I said, finally the band's learning how to write like a good structured rock song. Mm -hmm. It's not super heavy or anything. Like really none of the stuff is super heavy. I guess back at that time it might be considered hard rock, but definitely not metal. Yeah. Uh, But it's got a great rock riff, a couple of nice solos, and a pretty catchy chorus. Cool. All right. Uh, Caught in a Dream. Yeah, 
I love it. That song's great. <laughs> I've never heard this before. That's really good. Yeah, I think a lot of people haven't heard, you know, other than like, you know, School's Out and No More Mr. Nice Guy and some of the, yeah, the big the, singles. The big so a lot of these songs people, uh, at least these days, haven't really heard. But there's some really great stuff. These are two of my it's favorite fantastic. albums ever. So, yeah. No, I really like it. I'm going to be listening through this whole thing. Like when I like I said, Love It to Death and Killer are great albums. Like I had them on vinyl, and I when I was in my teens, and I listened to the crap out of those records. No, like that's if that's the first, that's just the first song in the album. That's a really good way to open it. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, definitely. All right, song four. Um, yeah. Also, also from Love It to Death, we're gonna do I'm 18 because it was like one of their yeah. probably their first big hit. Uh, it's a coming of age classic. So like I was saying, I had this album on vinyl when I was 18. And uh, mm-hmm. this this song got tons of play for me, even like almost thirty years after it originally came out. Uh, it's really like the perfect soundtrack for teenage angst. Uh, all right, I'm I'm eighteen. I have I haven't heard it for a bit, but it's always good to really re listen to it. forgot about the harmonica <laughs> I, I would like to point out the harmonica <laughs> i would like to point out that vince or, or alice was the harmonica player for the band so oh that was like his that was his instrument was the harmonica so i should have mentioned that before i don't see him playing that very much now uh, actually i just i heard something interesting about the harmonica today uh about the rolling stones again where i think it was keith richards was saying that uh mick jagger he yeah. considers him his best musically when he's playing the harmonica, but he just never plays it on stage. But apparently he's Mick really good at it? insane, insane oh, wow. on the harmonica. Yeah. So Keith well, Richards is saying. He's got those freaking big lips, eh? Like he's just made yeah, for He'd it. have to be. <laughs> yeah. like, could play four of them just, at once. It's just a given. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. even practice. He just picks one up and does it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, number five. Yeah. Uh, we do the first song off of the album Killer from 1971 called Under All My right. Wheels. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite opening tracks to an album ever uh, it starts out with a great riff it's like relatively fast and heavy i mean this is very relative obviously mm-hmm. uh for the scene at the time in the for band. 1971 yeah. yeah uh it's just a great upbeat rock track sounds like some saxophone thrown in there for good measure even though i couldn't yeah. find uh, a credit for it but uh alice's rough aggressive vocals fit in perfect also in a great solo sweet yeah. uh all right under my wheels the telephone I got two albums to listen to because that's also amazing. I don't think I've heard a single song off of this album looking at the titles, especially not Dead Baby. So that's not a song I would seek out. Yeah, the only one I would think you might have. Let me just take a look here because there are some songs that are a little like Desperado. Might you might have heard? 
That might be the only one, actually. Maybe Desperado. Halo yeah. Flies, I guess, did okay as a single, but it was too long for, like, uh, North yeah, American I radio, say, I think. Eight, eight and a half minutes, that's that's a tough sell now. <laughs> but both but both these albums are, are awesome. Like, pardon the pun, but they're both killer. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. They're definitely figuring out how to write a song, right? Like they, they, yeah, they got, no, you, can, you can tell. It's it, it gets a little more complex. Yeah. All right, song number six, another song off of Killer. Uh, it's Halo Flies. It's gonna be a little tough because Halo Flies is like over eight minutes long. Yeah. But it's uh, like, it's probably a hard one to get into on first listen. Uh, it's pretty epic, but it's comprising of several different parts over its eight minutes, and all the parts are really cool. But it's like you can't just listen to thirty seconds of it and, and get it. But mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, give it a try anyway. But I highly recommend listening to the entire yeah. song at some point. But I'm a big fan of songs that run long and, and like earn it. Like I think you would really it. enjoy this if you listen to yeah. it in its entirety, but give it a little okay. taste. Yeah, I'll yes. give it a shot. Halo flies. But I still did destroy her. And I will smash Halo I, I do like what I'm hearing. Like, it's got tempo changes. It's almost like it's just different songs within the one song. Yeah, it I changes, like it it changes yeah. like, pretty drastically, like, a few times within the song. And they're like, all the se- all, all the different parts of the song are pretty yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know how much I like 2112, so I'm okay with that, as long as it works. Oh, yeah, Rush? Those, yeah, like, the whole 20-minute song. Songs. <laughs> That's yeah. just, oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, on to number seven. Got to do right. school schools out from schools out. Yeah. Nineteen seventy two. I was wondering if you're going to skip it or not. No, I'll, I'll do it just for just for the audience. I mean, everyone's heard of it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to put a song on from their first two albums, which even though schools out is not my favorite album of theirs, it's still yeah. like way better than the first two albums. So uh, I couldn't put a song from Pretties for You on there and not put a song from Schools Out. So yeah, true. I'll just put I'll put on the title track Schools Out, which is is actually a great song. I just say like I, mm-hmm. I love the song, the album as a whole is just not great the album um, itself, yeah. but yeah it's got a pretty iconic opening riff and a theme chorus and uh definitely the highlight of that album for sure cool yeah. all right now uh, and it's and it's the opening track too so it's all downhill from there uh, yeah unfortunately right, school's out well, we got no I get the idea. I know the song. It's a, uh, it's a good song. Unfortunately, I hear it every single weekend. <laughs> yeah, I work, mean, so <laughs> out of like out of all the songs in this list, that's probably the most overplayed one on the radio. Yeah, but uh, also great. I think it was Guitar Hero that it was in. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah I remember using that. Yeah, I remember Hero. that Guitar Hero like early on. Yeah. Guitar Hero. Mm, it was one of the first ones. Yeah. Um, on to number eight is Billion Dollar yep. Babies. So we'll, we'll, we'll do the title track, Billion Dollar Babies, from the album Billion Dollar Babies from 1973. Sweet. It's uh, another iconic song, great bass line. The song just has a pretty cool beat to it. Uh, and a, a quote from Cooper in 1973, mind you, he was pretty drunk usually 
you know, in the interview for that. The, <laughs> okay. the whole idea, the whole idea behind Billion Dollar Babies album was exploiting the idea that people do have sick perversions. That's the way he said it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, it's also got several great guitar solos in it. Uh, all right, Billion Dollar Babies. <laughs> big fan of the beat in that one it's really cool yeah that's exactly what i said it's got a great yeah. beat right <laughs> yeah it's it's really good uh, yeah you can see the the way they're progressing too i think a lot uh, of it's the they, drums actually the drums are really cool yeah, in it. yeah. The, the drums are driving it for sure the bass is yeah. good too like yeah. everything's good but yeah the rhythm section is really are... good in that but there's also some really good uh good solos in it there's like two or three really good solos in it too the the sense i'm getting with alice cooper is they really love to start songs up off by just one instrument then the second instrument then the third instrument and then they break into the song <laughs> yeah they did they found <laughs> they, a formula that worked for them for a bit there eh? <laughs> yeah they, they just add things on until the song can start <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you can guess what song number nine is no more mr nice guy i thought we were done at eight so <laughs> no i'll do a couple more because i want to do at least one song from each album but uh oh okay. no, yeah. no more mr nice guy from billion dollar babies uh, another iconic classic kind of from early alice cooper uh so, I was thinking of throwing in a song called uh, I Love the Dead, which is uh, Cooper's Ode to Necrophilia, but I went with this one mm. instead, you know, just for, yeah. just for, uh, just for good taste sake, you know? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. But uh, I honestly listened to the great Megadeth cover of the song, No More Mr. Nice Guy, more than the original, but it's still, the original is a great track. But I haven't uh, actually listened to the Megadeth cover. Oh, well, listen to the Alice Cooper one now, but later on, listen okay. to the Megadeth cover. <laughs> yeah. All right. No more Mr. Nice Guy. that's still that's still a great song i like it better than school's out mostly just because it plays less than, than school's out yeah. on the radio but now i've now i've stuck myself with this because also in that song they do the same one instrument than the other instrument they, they really love to to go in that way yeah it's almost like every almost every song <laughs> it's like it's, it, it happens yeah. a lot uh so number 10 uh, just for the sake of having a song from each album i guess from the original lineup right. uh the, the man with the golden gun like i was talking about before from Muscle of Love from 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I'd throw that in. Like I was just saying before, they, uh, they were hoping it would be a title track to the James Bond movie of the same name. Uh, and I listened to the uh, the song they actually did pick, that Lulu song, and it's terrible. I mean, they definitely should have gone it's, with this one. It's, it sucks. <laughs> Even like the, the intro can't save it because it's it's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad, yeah. Um, <laughs> the movie's yeah, great, though. Watch the movie. But, I mean, Muscle of Love is, is not it's not a terrible album. The first song is not too bad. Uh it didn't do very well commercially, and uh, yeah. it kind of led to the band breaking up. So, yeah, I'm really glad that you picked this one though, because I was gonna listen to it right after, anyways, because I just want to I want to hear how much better their version would have been. All right, much man much with the better. golden gun. <laughs> yeah, it's hard hard not to be. Yeah. All right, man with the golden gun. Oh. 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 
It's so much better. Well, it just it like actually fits the film too. <laughs> yeah, it's, this would have been so much better with this. That's too bad. I mean, who, who knows if this if this had been out to the movie, maybe that would have been the catalyst to like keep the band together. You know? Yeah. <laughs> honestly, probably. I mean, that was that was a that was a great movie. Mm-hmm. This would have fitted so much better. Maybe I'll just I'll I'll download I'll download the movie and edit it so I can uh, yeah <laughs> I can change what song plays at the start. Yeah, well, be make sure you send me a copy of that with the, the better song. <laughs> just the, just old, the only change I make. Right. <laughs> Everything else is the same. All right, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it for the workout playlist. All right. Uh, well, I got probably listen to Muscle Love too, but there's two big albums, Killer and uh, Easy Action. Going to be going right to those. No, no, no. Uh, or no, Love It to Death. Sorry. Love It to I Death and some, Killer, yeah. yeah. I went backwards. Yeah. Love It to Death and Killer. Definitely going to be yeah, going those are my, tomorrow. Those are my... Those are definitely my two my two favorites. Mm-hmm. Out of Billion Dollar Babies, these. probably. I'll Billion say. Dollar Babies is probably the third after yep. those two. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I've honestly barely listened to any Alice Cooper the band, so it's nice to get a bit of an eye opener there. Yeah, I mean, especially for people of like, your generation, the younger people, this will be yeah. something. A lot of the stuff you haven't heard before, it. Right? So. Yeah, like get schools out and feed my Frankenstein from Wayne's World. <laughs> that was about it until I hit like nineteen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Uh, any news with him? Oh, uh, I mean, just like I mentioned before, that he he released an album last year, uh, right? Called right. Detroit Stories, which is uh, okay. yeah, it's a decent album. I listened to it. Cool. All right. Um, he's still out there. I'm sure he'll be touring uh, again. I, I mean, now, now the tours are starting to open up again. Uh, keep an eye open because he's. I, I believe he's still active. Uh, okay. Well, if that's it, then that playlist. Don't forget, it goes on Spotify. Uh, we update it every episode with those new songs. So make sure to check it out. We'll have links to that. And that is going to do it for this episode of the Heavy. So see the show notes. We got a complete list of songs that you heard us talk about. Uh, link to that Spotify playlist with all the songs from the season. And then be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app if you like the show. Tell a friend and leave us a rating on iTunes. Our website is www.theheavy.ca. You can email us at theheavypod at gmail.com. We're getting some emails lately. Keep doing that. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at The Heavy Pod. Our show is edited by Ian Sutherland. Andrew does all the research. Our brother Rob designed our logo. Our theme song, Stallions of the Highway by Savage Blade. I'm your host, Don Sutherland. Thanks for listening. We will catch you again in two weeks. Later.